bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Good evening, Roger Connors. What is up? Good evening, Troy. How are you? I'm great, except I can't do those fancy little voices that you can do because I'm not an actor. So and That's why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> so how, how have you been? Troy, you know what? I, um, I'm doing pretty damn good. I'm pretty damn good. And let me tell you, I didn't even tell you in advance of this because I, I decided it. I'm going to announce it here. I officially can announce the distribution for my film with Midnight Releasing. Yeah. Let's hear this. Yeah. Here we are. Rebirth is going, uh, going to be released nationally through Midnight Releasing. I'm so excited. Nice. So excited. Congratulations. Do you have any like, like date perspectives or? No, but I mean, already, so one of the things that I liked is their social media, um, the head of their like marketing Mm -hmm. uh, asked if it was okay if I gave her access to like my Facebook and my social media accounts. And she's like, I'm not like taking over, but I am going to add things. I'll run them by you. Um, But we're going to be co-running them if you're comfortable with that. She, you know, she just said that if that's something I wanted, it came as part of the, the deal. And I was like, please, cause I work in um, marketing, but everything I've done has been very much geared towards like my last few jobs. Uh, and with film and everything, I'd love to learn a little bit. So yeah, so she's stepping in and um, it's nice to have someone help run that aspect because that's huge in the regards to, you know, who's made aware of the product. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I have not heard of that. You know, uh, certainly the distributors that I've worked with have not done that. So Consider that a huge, huge plus. Um, and we touched up, yeah, we touched on that a little bit last week. So I'm not going to go off on that tangent again. But congratulations, that's awesome. I cannot wait for people. Yeah, I can't wait for people to see it. I see all the positive reviews that are much deserved. Um, and I'm just going to throw my little thing in there and say again, if you if you're a fan of Romero's original Night of the Living Dead, you must must check this out. Um, Thank you. Oh, you're making me blush. For a variety. I mean, it's really well done and it's timely. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's super. And I'm not just saying that because you host podcasts with me. It's really, <laughs> yeah, people, need to, people need to check it out. I really appreciate it. And you have your, I mean, like what a good week for us because you have your um, Frank Meter Awards. You just kind of announced that you're running that. Like that just popped up, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's something I've been doing since 2007. Uh, if you if you guys want to if you guys want to check it out, there's a blog uh, called frightmeter.com. It's a blog that I created back in like 2006, so it's been up for a long time, and it's it's you know it has a lot of hits. I, I don't know why I'd, I really didn't keep it up, but um, it's where I did a lot of movie reviews, and so you can go back and read some reviews. And then I have always been a huge fan of like the Oscars, so. And I was always pissed that the Oscars ignore horror films. So, yeah, so on my little blog, I just started these annual awards. And 
they've been going strong for the last, well, since 2007. So what, 13 years? That's crazy. And I have, yeah, I had a committee, like a committee at one point that had like 60 people and we determined the nominees and the winners each year. I have little custom trophies made. So if you go to the Fright Meter Awards page, you can see like people like Lynn Shea, Tracy Lords, um, Lee Wanell, uh, the Soska sisters all holding their Fright Meter Awards. I love it. I love that. And I know you've had that blog. I know you kind of like uh, stepped back from it a bit, but you know, I'm speaking for myself, but I think a lot of the listeners here too would love to see Fright Meter um, maybe make a little bit of a resurgence. What in the midst of Corona times with so much time on our hands? I know, right? Right. So yeah, check it out. And then I did, so I was lucky enough to be able to do some interviews based on the, the, the site and the award. So I actually interviewed like Lucky McKee, um, Lynn Shea, uh, a bunch of people. So yeah, so those interviews are still up. So that was kind of my dipping my toes into the horror genre back in 2007, which has led to what I've done now, um, which is just, you know, mind boggling to think about. But I also, you know, do the Houston Horror Film Festival with my really good friend, Tony Rodriguez. And I have to give that a plug because we did a one day um, Houston, um, pop-up market on Saturday. Yes. And we had some great, we had six celebrity guests, including Deborah Foreman, uh, Felissa Rose, uh, Dave Sheridan, um, Miko Hughes, Ari Lehman. Was Amelia Kincaid there? Amelia, Kin- Amelia Kincaid. So we did that one day. We just did a little one day event. We made it safe. It was all social distanced and everything. So it went really well. Great turnout. Everyone loved it. It was cool to be able to hang out with these wonderful, you know, guests that I've admired since I was a kid. Um, and so it went really well. And it was just kind of in preparation of, of the uh, main event, which is going to be in June, June 25th through the 27th, which is last, which will actually have the film festival attached to it. So if you have a film or a screenplay right now, go to uh, Film Freeway and submit it to us. We'd love to see it. Do it. Do it. Submit those films. Because God knows by the time June rolls around, we may not be in full uh, full form, but we're, we're going to be working towards it with all of these vaccines and everything. I'm really hoping some of these events can roll out a little bit more. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, open access where people can actually go and not feel terrified that they're, you know, inflicting disease upon themselves because I'm, I'm losing my mind. I need to go to one of these. Who knows? Maybe I'll be there. You should. You know what? Oh my gosh. I've had a request for you to be there. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> we'll talk. He has a huge, uh, it's a secret oh, I admirer. It. <laughs> I love it. He's Tell like, I, he's like, I need the hot principal from teacher shortage to be here in June. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me everything. Tell me more after the after we're done recording. But my God, you just got me so excited. I feel so good about myself. Oh, whoever it is, tell them I said thank you. Well, they'll hear it when they listen to this episode of Dark Knight of the Podcast. And moving forward, Troy, lead into it. Okay. Well, yeah, we are. We I'm I'm very excited to talk about this film. And I was very surprised to learn that you have never seen this film. I'm not, I've seen like a sequence from it on like an, on a uh, online like compilation of like uh, sequences, like best sequences from a slasher volume eight, you know, like one of those things. And, um, and I like, it drew my eye. I remember, I remember, I obviously remember it because I remember Amy and her blue top and that top popping and, and sticking in my memory banks. But other than that, yeah, I've had no exposure to this film at all. 
Okay, so the film we are talking about today is 1988's Hide and Go Shriek, uh, directed by Skip Schoolnick, who uh, is actually, he was the editor for Halloween 2. Yes. Yes, and which is very interesting because watching this film now, I could see uh, a lot of, and I know John Carpenter did not direct Halloween 2 before anybody comes at me about that, but I could see a lot of Carpenter-esque influence in this film with like the use of shadows mm-hmm. and like things happening to the side of the frame yes. background. Yes. Um, and Skip also did uh, produced walking dead. So the skip school and they're coming at you. Right. This is one of his few though, directorial efforts, which is a shame. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got to say Halloween too. In some ways, I, I don't want to say I prefer it to Halloween one, but God, I love it. And I think visually there's some really iconic shots in that, that due to the editing, that it makes sense to me that you would say this, like the sequence of her in the elevator with the big red, ba- you know, the coloration, the yes. really rich red background. Uh, there's some really bold artistic choices that I do feel like it's some certain shots in this film, similar kind of vibe, similar kind of flow. So I dig it. So, and this is probably the gayest film we've covered. Oh, it's gay. Yeah, and I, I, I had mentioned last week that I, the reason I wanted to cover this film, A, it's, it's a film that I, 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 I like. I enjoy, this, I enjoy this film very much. Although, again, watching these films, you know, years later after, you know, the last time I've seen it, I do start to notice a lot of little things that I just never noticed before. But um, this film always entertained me. Uh, and I did want to do this film because there is a very, very, very queer aspect to this film. And again, I've heard other, you know, horror fans, gay horror fans, queer horror fans, maybe talk about this film in terms of the, the whole gay aspect of the film being problematic. But we will talk about that in the end. We'll get into it. We'll get, we'll get elbow deep into it. But this is a, but Hide and Go Shriek, 1988. So this came out very late, uh, kind of at the tail end of the, the golden 80s slasher era. This was one of the late, the last of the 80s true slasher films. And it centers around a group of teens, uh, eight teenagers, four couples, that decide that they are going to spend their graduation in uh, to celebrate their graduation, they're going to spend the night in a giant furniture store, which is owned by one of the uh, kids' father. Uh, fine furniture is what it's called. So they, yeah, so they, so they make their way to the furniture store and spend the night. And lo and behold, there's someone in the furniture store with them that begins killing them off. Um, so that's the, that's the synopsis. It's very straightforward, very, uh, you know, slasher-esque. But this film has a lot of elements to it that I really feel make it stand out from other films from the era. And we'll get to that. But let's talk about the opening scene because it really is interesting and intriguing. And really, we'll have to talk about it, but it doesn't really connect to the rest of the film, but it is kind of an effective opening scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It opens on that really... um, grand epic shot of the city skyline with like that really like ominous tone coming in and it does a kind of a slow sweep over across the city and moves in on one of the buildings it pushes in on it and i thought you know what what, that was a really smart opening after viewing the film and we'll you know eventually get into this i was like it was really wise opening on such like a grand scope because 
a lot, the, this whole film is almost completely centered, as you mentioned, in a department store. When there's not a lot of exterior, there's not a lot of cityscapes. And so I almost feel like they did that, like consciously had to do that because it is such a, um, a large, vast opening sequence as you move in on that main central location where you reveal where that first sequence is taking place. Yes, and I love, we have to talk about the score of this film too because the mm-hmm. score of this film is just, it's sort of like the Hello, Mary Lou Prom Night 2 score that we talked about um, because that score is just much more grand than the material requires and I feel like this is the same. Particularly yeah. when you get to the opening credits and it's just like this grand score with like horns and drums and just everything going loud and in your face. And it really is kind of jarring because of the type of film it is. But back to the opening scene, once you get that beautiful um, scenery of the city, which is L.A., I think, is where this was shot, um, you kind of go into a building and you, 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 you see a, a guy who's in the mirror and he's putting on makeup. You know, and we're talking about lipstick, mascara, blush, etc., which is, again, a very interesting way to open a slasher film, particularly in 1988. And then he puts on a, like a fedora and a suit. <laughs> so it's, it's not like your typical, like Jason Michael Myers masked killer. Um, this guy is, is just dressing up with makeup and a, and a suit and a fedora. And he proceeds to drive down a boulevard and where there's a bunch of hookers and he finds the one he wants. He aggressively points to her. I like that. He's like, are you, you <laughs> and yeah and yeah and she she gets in of course and they it cuts to them having sex in the alley and he pulls out a switchblade and stabs her straight to the point there is no no fucking around with it he just stabs her and he drops her yeah which again we'll talk about because we don't want to well if you haven't seen this movie it's going to be spoiled but we don't want to spoil it way too early but that's one thing that's problematic because knowing who the killer is, it does not make sense. No, no, it doesn't. It did not add up. I feel like it almost felt, I almost, in a way, I feel like they made the movie realize that there are no exteriors and that they needed an opening, went back, filmed the sequence, had that really grand opening shot, and then they had like a random kill, which really, comparatively speaking to the rest of the kills throughout the film, is nothing. I mean, it's nothing like it's pretty lackluster and it just, yeah, it doesn't tie in. But I mean, that being said, it's, it's fine. Yeah, it is. And it, but it's almost like you could look at it. Like, was this even the same killer or was this just like random scene? Because like I said, when you get to the end of film and you realize who the killer is, it makes zero sense that he picked up a, a female prostitute and was having sex with her. Um, and then, yeah, you get the grand uh, opening credits with that huge Horn inspired score and everything. And then you get to, oh boy, talk about gay. <laughs> the gayest. <laughs> you, you, the film opens then after that opening scene and the opening credits with two guys, um, Randy. No, it's not Randy. It's John and David who are working out, you know, pumping iron in the backyard. Sweating. Sweating. And all David could talk about was how he wants to go take a shower. Come on. Come along. Yes. <laughs> and he's trying to get John to come and take the shower with him. And then he ta- he's eating. Oh, in the meantime, he's seductively eating a banana. <laughs> God, I mean, it is so gay. It really, my first note is, 
there seems to be some gay tension between these two, and rightfully so. They're two attractive men. They're in very short shorts. It's the 80s. Everyone has big hair. I think gay tension just existed whether you wanted it to or not, but these two are slathering it on. Oh, God. And the banana. The banana just is the icing on the cake. Because he, he... He's like, come on, come with And he takes the banana and like waves it in his face like it's a penis. Like I'll suck your dick in that shower if you come with me. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, okay, well, okay. Well, here we go. Starting strong. Um, <laughs> start strong with some with some hot ass dudes. Yeah. One of my notes is David has a great ass. It, li- it really is. He has a great ass in those shorts. So you know what? At least they gave us some eye candy for the era. These boys are not bad looking at all. They got good teeth. That one's got some real good teeth. He looks like Zach Morris. Johnny, he's got the best teeth. They gotta be fake. But yeah, these are some good looking guys across the board. Even the awkward ones are, comparatively speaking to some of the guys I've seen in lower budget slashers, they're they're good stock. Good stock. We we assume that they go into the shower and fuck, and <laughs> and then you cut to you cut to the two other guys. Uh, Randy and Sean, and I got to say, Randy is probably my favorite. I, I have a huge crush on on Randy, the guy that plays him, Britton Fry, uh, who was in Slumber Party Massacre Three. He was the the killer, and, and I've just always thought he was super. He was with the driller. He's the driller killer. It's that pompadour. Yes, I've always thought. He, yeah, I've always thought he was super cute. But in this one, he is just a, an odd duck because he's wearing sunglasses the whole time. And all they can talk about this entire fucking movie is the fact that he got a haircut. Oh, they love it. They're complimenting it. They're like, it's so nice. And I'm like, I mean, it's fine. It doesn't look like anything special. It's not like he has like a gigantic mohawk or anything. He just looks like a pompadour, like a basic everyday pompadour. I wanted to see what his hair looked like before because like it's this, it's brought up probably 50 times that he has a hair. They talk about it as though it's just a source of power. Like they're rubbing it for good luck at one point. Yeah. So you get Randy and Sean, who is Sean. Sean is not the cutest, but he's fun. No, <laughs> he's a lamb. He's a sweet lamb. He looks, he looks young. He looks innocent. At least you can say that of the cast, he probably looks the most age appropriate. Yeah, I actually have a note here that says, like, for, again, for a low-budget 80s slasher fair, um, most of the cast looks relatively close to the age I would expect. Like, even, like, some of them, when you see them shirtless, it's not like these men have, like, gigantic sculpted bodies. They all look like, you know, kind of normal human beings. And and I would agree with that. He's, um, Sean is the most realistic of the group. Yes, we'll, we'll be nice to Sean. And so it's really cool because the char- you're starting to get some characterization. And then you get into the girl's bedroom. Uh, where I, I think it's Bonnie's house. And they are immediately talking about getting fucked, getting married. Um, this little Melissa is going to have sex for the first time. Yeah, and Kim, who looks like she's 50. Kim, the blonde, is the one that looks like she's 50. She looks like she's built to fuck. Like, she is, a, she is a porn star body. I'll give you that much. And she's bronzed, but she's beautiful. And we got to love the, the outfits. Oh, God, there's so much skin. Though I will say, one of my notes, <clears throat> these girls, get me, get me in that bedroom hanging out with those girls. They're a good time. And they're really well written. And they're acted all across the board 
pretty fucking well. I like all of them. Even the ones that are meant to be annoying, I still think they're played well. Uh, see, here's the thing. I, I don't think any of them are meant to be annoying. I, this is probably the slasher film from the 80s that has the most likable characters. And we're going to get to that because being a slasher film, this film has a very slow pace and a very low body count. But I think that plays in the film's favor because these characters are so damn likable. Yeah. Yeah. And realistic. They're written, they're written very believably. We need to give Bunky Jones, that's the actress's name who plays fucking Bonnie, with the big brown hair. The biggest. She should have won an Oscar for this. I'm, I'm serious. She, her acting. Her, when, her peaks and valleys and her performance are, I honestly, one of my notes is Bonnie responds to trauma much like myself because there are some peaks and there are some valleys and they're big, but I love it. Yeah. I agree with you wholeheartedly. She is amazing. And uh, she should have been nominated for an Oscar. I'm sorry. Tony Collette, who uh, it should have been Bunky Jones. Bunky motherfucking Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Which sadly I went on her IMDb and apparently she died a couple of years. Stop. God damn it. Yeah. So these, I love the girls. The girls are a hoot. And I love that they're just talking about getting fucked and, I love that Kim is like, you'll ne- once you make love, you're never going to want to stop. And I'm like, okay, these you're like 17. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, she's not. Kim is, as you said, roughly 42. You're a whore. So, <laughs> but those other girls, those naive young girls are so we think. So it's, they're a great time. And then they all, the boys show up and they all go out uh, and we find out what their plan is. Their plan is to uh, go spend the night in this, Furniture store, which you know what sounds like something, you know, if I was a teenager and I had a friend that owned a furniture store and they're like, Hey, come and spend the night in it. I'd be like, okay, cool. That sounds fun. But these fucking kids are acting like this is going to be the best thing in their entire lives that they will ever experience. Yeah. I don't know. From the start, I thought this sounds problematic. I know what I was like when I was in high school. And if you put me in a goddamn furniture store, even if you said, don't touch anything and please don't break anything, there would be destruction and damage <laughs> everywhere. This is the worst idea. Johnny is an asshole for even expecting them to not cause mischief. He just shouldn't have done this to begin with. So in a way, they get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, I'm just like, and they're like, even David's like, this is going to be the time of our lives. I'm like, furniture. <laughs> have you not done, what have you done with your life, John, uh, David? This is all you have? A three floor furniture store? <laughs> but anyways, and the, again, I want to mention the outfits because they, they are so like, I don't, they're 80s. But they're also so like disproportionately dressed, like from casual to like nice. Because a couple of the girls have really like nice skirts, like they look really nice, like like um, Bonnie and Melissa and Bonnie. Bonnie's wearing a crop top where her nipples almost show. What are you talking about? I know, right? <laughs> but at least she has that. But at least she has that belt to tie it all together. <laughs> In that gigantic belt. <laughs> on that skirt that does not require one because yeah. it's spandex yeah. yes you're right she yeah, does have she that does. <laughs> but then you have what's that the, the poor, okay the poor dumpy the poor dumpy girl uh judy who is wearing like like she's wearing the most hideous outfit i've ever seen 
It's like khaki. <laughs> it's matronly is what it is. <laughs> it's khaki shorts that are like 12 sizes too big for her. Oh, and like a and like a gown of a top. <laughs> she looks like my like she looks like your next door neighbor, like next door neighbor's mother when she's doing like yard work. <laughs> like, um, they couldn't have put her in something better. But I think that was on purpose because there's a specific sequence with her that really threw me for a loop. We'll get to that in a little bit. You know who else has not done very uh, a lot of favors is uh, um. Oh God, uh, Melissa! Oh yeah, they made her look like uh, like she was like a, she was dressed like a grandmother. <laughs> um, and I get it; she's innocent and she's sweet. But it was um, it was just very very strange choices. It was the eighties. Who am I to say anything? It was a different era. Um, but yeah, I think they really took like some of the characters. They took their personalities and the, they, they went to the costume designer and they're like, "These are the personalities." run with it and the costume designer was like absolutely um yeah. <laughs> well they they gave melissa dinosaur earrings it's a lot did you see the dinosaur did you catch the dinosaur oh earring? i caught him there's a note <laughs> <laughs> i'm like oh my god so she's like no she's like dressed she's like dressed between like an old lady and like a three-year-old kid. she yeah she looks like some like a child in kindergarten blew up to the size of a grown woman <laughs> <laughs> and then the the guys are just like dressed like Randy's dressed in like nice clothes and then the other ones are just wearing like their gym shorts and like t-shirts. And- but what I will say about that that I like is I do feel again like all the personalities are very unique but also the styles even though like they're very exaggerated like Randy's style is very different from David's style who is very different from Johnny's style like everyone I can tell everyone apart by the end of this movie whereas sometimes you watch a slasher and you're like they all blur together. Not in this case. Everyone has a very distinct look. Everyone has a very distinct personality. And by the end of this, I knew exactly who each individual was. I agree. I agree. I I, I love, I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I love this film. I love these characters, but looking back on it, we can, we can, you know, <laughs> but, um, so then they get in this old van and you got, you get this like nickel version of Aerosmith's walk this way. And yeah, because they couldn't afford the rights to the real song. So it's just like some generic version. And, you know, you get their shenanigans when they're at a stop sign and they they get out and play like Chinese fire drill where they run around the car, which is cute. You know, I, I appreciate like stuff like this because it really makes these kids feel like kids, like teenagers. That's the thing that the, this film has going for it in spades that I'm sorry. A lot of other slasher films do not have. Because these kids feel like teenagers. They feel like friends. They have chemistry together. Um, and like you said, you know who's who in this film. There's no, you know, you're not, you're not confusing characters because they all are very distinct. Yeah, and I'll say like moving forward, like for a film that where I, I don't say this in a bad way, but plot is reasonably thin. Um, it's made up, it makes up for it with the fact that you're just kind of learning about who these individuals are and how they interact and how they, um, uh, 
you know, exist with each other. And it's played in such a natural way that you feel like you're almost just watching them kind of exist in real time. And I don't mind it. I don't mind that the storyline is kind of thin for that reason, because it's one night, it's focused completely just around this reasonably small cast. And yeah, they have personality in spades, like you said. So yeah, I enjoy it. And I think all these little moments are what just makes you care about them more as things progress. So they get to the furniture store and, you know, it's like we said, it's fine furniture. And um, they see the um, once they pull up and everything, there's the strange tattooed guy. I think his name's Fred. Who we find out is a ex-convict who is now who's John has hired to, you know, work in the furniture store and is actually letting him live there because he doesn't have a place to go. Which is very generous, all things considered. I mean, not here. Here's a job and a place to live in my business establishment. That's a lot of trust to put in this guy. Well, especially an ex-con who he said was in prison for um, robbery or, or whatever. But anyways, and you would think you you would think that John would know that this guy was living in his dad's furniture store. You'd think that's just something that he yeah. would know. Um, but apparently he doesn't. Okay. So obviously uh, Fred is set up to be the red herring. And there is a scene where John's dad and this other guy are walking out to the car. And this other guy's like, I can't believe you hired that guy. He's, he's so freaking creepy. And you know, why are you letting him live at the live here? And John's dad is like, well, he's fine. And you know, since he's lived here, we haven't had any break-ins. And the guy then says, and this is where you get foreshadowing people. The guy says, oh, no, that has to do with the, the new unbreakable glass that you had installed. Foreshadowing. Thank God for that. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, so that kind of was there. So then the kids get in the furniture store. They're locked in and they start to take a tour of the furniture store. And this is a fucking huge furniture store. Yeah. I got to say one thing you meant, like when you're mentioning the whole sequence where they're giving all the exposition about the location and about the unbreakable glass and all of that. One thing I appreciated and one thing that is consistent throughout this whole film is it does take its time. And because of that, there'll be these sequences. Like you have that whole sequence of the father going through the entire store and turning off the lights and there's not really any score. And you have the sound of his footfalls and it's very just like drawn out. And it's because it's kind of takes its time. It's almost kind of off putting um, and then, you know, the character who is like his store assistant, that whole dialogue, as they did a lot of like follow shots, it was very fluid. And a lot of those movies from the era are very stagnant. And so you do get some really nice motion in this sequence that I was like, wow, this actually is shot pretty well, all things considered. I really like that they take their time. And that kind of carries through the rest of the film. You'll have sequences of like things of, like there's a cooking sequence where you see the meat hit the the pan and everything. Like cool shots like that that just let things kind of breathe in the moment. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There are. There are some really cool shots, including especially some of the death scenes are filmed. Oh yeah, we'll get into that for sure. Yeah. So they walk around and one thing that kind of makes this furniture store unique and just adds to the atmosphere of the film because this film does have a, a, a quite a effective claustrophobic atmosphere to it. Oh, very. Um, and it's very creepy just because of the setting. And on top of that now, this furniture store is filled to the brim with mannequins. Oh my God, loved it. Because apparently John's dad says having these mannequins make the store makes the store look lived in. It also makes it look fucking 
horrifying. Yes. So he succeeded in both levels. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I mean, we have mannequins galore in this furniture store. Yeah, yeah, uh, and they come in. They come into play in the film. It's not like they're just there. They they do come into play. Yeah. So, anyways, this is when the group decides after they do the little tour um, to break up and play hide and go seek. It's Kim's Kim the blonde's um, idea. Let's break up and play hide and go seek. So they are like, yeah, 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 but you're it, and they all take off running. So this is what kind of starts the whole film into motion is when the kids break up and, and start to play hide and go seek. So they, yeah, they start to play hide and go seek. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's it's pretty drawn out. I thought you were going to kind of get like in and out of some of this, but they really take their time. They only technically play it twice in the movie, um, but it really is kind of, as soon as they start playing, it kind of encompasses a large chunk of the film. And because, like you said, the environment is so um, is so effect- effective, which I did not anticipate it would be. I kind of thought at first, I was like, ugh, a furniture store. Like, is this like all they could get with the budget? But no, it's actually quite effective. And because of good lighting and usage of shadows, like you said, they really play it up. But um, <clears throat> once Kim starts going around and the game begins, you really kind of um, kick it off into, I don't want to say high gear. The movie's never moving like at a really like fast pace, but every once in a while you get some pops of good suspense and genuinely a few creepy sequences, like actually creepy moments in this film. I was surprised that it still kind of holds up. And once the game begins, there really are some effective scenes. Yes, it's a very, the pace of this film is very, I wouldn't say slow. I'd say deliberate. It's, yes. It's certainly not a Friday the 13th where there's a kill every five minutes. This film takes its time. So I could see why, you know, maybe watching it now with some, with a younger audience that they might not be able to get invested in it. And I could see why it maybe not, maybe it's not one of the more popular films slasher films from the 80s because the pacing is a little like i said slow deliberate and i i like that though because like i said these these are characters that i would love to spend a lot of time with so i don't mind that we get to spend a lot of time with them yeah i agree you get the scene and this happens like four times so this does kind of get of get annoying you get a scene where like david jumps out and scares um well when they first get there like bonnie and John jump out and scare everybody. And this is a thing that's used like four or five times in the film. So it does get a little repetitive. It's like a, a cheap jump scare because then David does the same thing. He's, he jumps out and scares Bonnie with a mannequin arm. And then Randy does it later. So that gets a little annoying, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's fine. So while they're playing hide and go seek, Bonnie and John stop to make love. And there's this very sultry, it's very well done. And it's very, I don't even know the word, but John takes his shirt off and then Bonnie's like in this weird, like slow motion sort of way, but it's not slow motion. It's the actress just pulls her top off very seductively. And, um, and then they get into bed and he has champagne ready for her. And uh, yeah. and that's when he pops the champagne cork, the cork flies and lands. And that's when we get the first indication that someone else is in the building because it lands at this person's feet. 
yeah. they pick it up and you can kind of see the silhouette of this person that's wearing this fedora that's very similar to what we saw in the opening scene with the uh with the hooker getting killed but even that little moment with with john and bonnie in bed is very like touching uh because yeah you really get to see that at, at least with bonnie um I think is a pretty damn good actress. John, I think is charming too. But yeah, you know what you're saying about like it kind of being actually this effective kind of like sexual sequence, but it's not gratuitous, even though you get a lot of TNA in this. Um, a lot of these scenes seem very genuine. Um, and like the scene, like you see them, they take, you know, they, they get naked and they get under the blankets, but then they like drink their champ. They drink their champagne. It's not like smutty. Um, and I, was fine with it. I actually thought, yeah, it was kind of erotic and well-played. And it all kind of led up to the whole aspect of the voyeuristic aspect of they're being watched and they don't even know. And that added another layer to it. So I thought it was very well-played. A lot of the, the sexual scenes in this are very intentional and well-played. It's not, it's not sleazy at all. Like you can't, even though every, I think every girl in this film gets topless at some point, this film does not seem sleazy. It's not exploitative or anything. It's very natural. Yeah, and I and I agree with you. I think I think Bunky Jones is a great actress. And I, I've I've read people that have like I've read reviews that have just like slaughtered her performance. But I I just there's something about her that is very engaging. And I wish she would have been in more. I know she was like in um, Grotesque, the Linda Blair film, Grotesque, and then she was in. Something else, but other than that, she really would, never did much. And I, I think that this film, she's really good in it, like very natural. Rabunka Jones is how she was. Then they change it to Bunky, yeah. Rabunka. Okay, I mean that's very much of the area era. A Bunky Jones. Uh, I mean, her agent was aiming for a very specific sound that did not transcend into the '90s and beyond with a Bunky Jones. But uh, yeah, no, she was very natural in this role. Wish we would have seen more from her. And overall, even with how her character eventually has her response to things later in the film, I, in my mind, I'm like, I bet you some people slam this performance. And you know what? I think it's pretty damn good because I know people who would react the same fucking way as a Rebecca Jones. I do. I do too. I, I feel like her her reactions is probably the most natural, the most realistic of all of the, all of them. I can't imagine like some of these people staying as calm as they did when they just find, found their friends like brutally murdered. Yeah. I was just on YouTube when I was, when I was kind of researching this film and looking for the trailer and stuff. And I did, I found this like three minute review and the woman was just like, Oh, Rebunka Jones has to be the worst actress I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm like, lady, really? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> How dare you come for Rebunka Jones, our, our new favorite, Bunky Jones. But yeah, so clearly we like her. Proceed. Kim finds them and then they, they have to be it now. And then we get all, I mean, it, it, this is really drawn out because then it cuts to Sean and Melissa. And Sean and Melissa are the dorkier ones of the bunch. And yes, and they were supposed to be together to try to hook up. And they don't think it's working very well because Melissa's like, well, maybe we should just be friends. And then all of a sudden they kiss. And you're like, okay, here we go. That's all it takes. So then you get back to the group and 
they have the whole scene where fucking Randy jumps out now and scares everybody because they can't find Randy. Where's my man? And, you know, he's trying to trick him, scare him. So that's like the fourth time of that little stunt of someone jumping out and scaring everybody. And then they go off to hide again and you get this really, uh, you get the scene of the killer, like chaining all the doors locked interspersed with like the kids hiding, which I thought was really, really um, effective. He locks them all in, which again, with his motive later, sort of doesn't make much. I agree. We'll talk about that as we always say. Um, And then you cut to, uh, you cut back to Melissa and Sean and they're making out. And, Oh, we forgot to mention that um, Kim had brought this black lingerie that she was going to wear with uh, for Randy, but she gives it to Melissa because she wants Melissa to get laid with, with Sean. So Melissa has this black nighty. So Sean and her are making out. She's like, Oh, well I have a surprise for you. So I'm going to, I'll be right back. And she goes into the bathroom to undress and put the lingerie on. And Sean gets, gets into his underwear and this is 35 minutes into the film. I counted 35 minutes. So this is how slow and deliberate the pacing is because this is the first, besides the hooker at the beginning, which doesn't really count, 35 minutes into the film is, is when the first character gets killed. And it's Melissa. And she has this, she's, wash, she's washing up in the sink and the killer comes up behind her and basically smashes her face into the sink and drowns her. And it's a really well done shot. And it's a really well done scene because the camera is below the sink and it's a clear sink. And you just see her face being smashed into the bottom of the, um, the, the sink. And then you see the blood coming out of her head as it's, it's really a well done shot. Yeah. I like this because it wasn't, um, it wasn't in any way like an unrealistic first kill like you know it's a standard drowning beating kill but there is a rawness to it when the killer appears behind melissa and grabs her and the struggle and her screaming um this this killer doesn't seem superhuman he's he's a he's an average man who's struggling with you know a 17 year old girl but like obviously he's like trying to smother her and everything and they just starts beating her head against the sink and then he just drowns her and that yeah that shot from the bottom of the sink, seeing the blood come out of her mouth and everything. Very dramatic. It was a really impressive first kill. Um, I jumped when he appeared out of the shadows and grabbed her. Like I actually had a, a jump reaction, did not anticipate that. So yeah, it was a very effective sequence. And it was interesting that, you know, it's interesting who gets killed in this film and the order they're killed in. It's, it's because I wouldn't have expected her. Yeah. Cause she's such a lamb. She's so sweet. Yeah. The- to be the first to go, but she is. And again, 35 minutes. Now, if this was a Friday the 13th film, half the cast would have been yeah. dead by now. Yeah, and this movie, one thing I like is like when you think of like, what are all the tropes of a slasher? Like, you think of the aspect of like the virgin makes it to the end. Everybody in this movie's banging. They're all fucking. Yeah. Um, and this girl was kind of like the more the, the mo- most modest of the group. And uh, they just got rid of her. They just asked her off right away. So, yeah, I was pretty impressed by that. You cannot really predict what's going to happen with this. Yes. And then you get, um, I'm trying to think, you get back, because it keeps interspersing with a different couple. So you go back to David and Judy, and they're in bed together, and she's feeling bad for being a virgin. And she's like, I should have done it a long time ago. 
I'm sorry, I'm disappointing you. And you're like, you're 16, it's fine. <laughs> Look at how active are you children? <laughs> One of you has to have had an abortion by this point. There's no way with the amount of sex you're all having. Definitely Kim, I think it was Kim. Um, so, and then, okay, so then Sean goes to look for Melissa. And this is the really kind of interesting part about this film because this is kind of when you see the killer's, um, what do you want to say? His what? I guess his motivation for, for what sets him apart from every other killer. It's, it's his defining pretty. Yeah. I was going to say his trick is that he when he kills people, he dresses up in their clothes and then that's how he lures the next victim because Sean sees someone wearing, you know, Melissa's clothes or, and, and he thinks it's her. And she frolics away <laughs> in the most off-putting manner possible. <laughs> I love the little giggle. It's like, <laughs> it takes off running. <laughs> he chases he goes after her, but he go, when he gets to her, he realizes, oh my gosh, this isn't Melissa, because he sees like the hairy chest coming out of the lingerie. And this is when the killer does have kind of a, a moment of like superhuman strength, particularly, again, knowing who the killer is, because he's able to lift this high school, this kind of beefy little high school kid up over his head, like he's a sack of potatoes, and he slams him down on this, this I guess, a, yeah, it's an art piece, but it spikes. Yeah, yeah. It's like a very 1980s, like, unique uh, <laughs> interpretive piece of art, but it has these, like, yeah, spears coming up. I loved this kill. It was very, um, it almost made me think of, like, um, uh, in a way, like, a, um, like an Argento-y kind of kill, because the blood was very red. You see the image of the spikes, but it was, you didn't see a ton of the violence itself. You saw like the blood running down the hand, really dug this kill. Um, and even, yeah, you're right. That is kind of excessive, the whole, like he raises him over his head. But I think that might be part of the reason that out of comparatively speaking, out of all of the men, he was the smallest. You notice that? Like, so maybe to, that's why, because he was the one that gets this very, physical death um but it is effective i really enjoyed that kill it is a, it's a really cool death i just don't know i don't know if i'd be able to lift someone oh up god i would crumble under the weight of anyone <laughs> a child i couldn't even lift a child let alone a man so that is a really cool death and you're right it's very argento-esque and you don't it's not graphic by any means you you do see like the spikes um you see his hand gripping the spikes as he's sliding down which is really cool and the blood coming off of his hands it's really, it's a really effective death scene. Um, so once that is yeah. over, um, you cut back to John and Bonnie who have just had sex and Bonnie is not happy because it only took John 10 seconds. Understandable. And again, I know, but again, this is just another one of those little touches of, of dialogue that make these characters like a little bit more realistic than you would expect because you know, She's hounding him because he took 10 seconds. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's just the excitement um, of, of what's going on. And he's like, I thought you liked the way I make love. And she's like, I do. But just sometimes I wish you would wait for me. I'm not quite ready. It's just very, I don't know. Just there's something about it. Does she say warm it up? She's like, sometimes I like it if you warm it up or something like that. <laughs> but it's, it's just, 
a little moment with this to characters that, that are, again, it just, you get to kind of get a sense of their relationship and, and how they interact with each other that you, you just generally wouldn't get. Uh, and then uh, Randy and Ken interrupt them and make fun of the whole, oh, 10 second thing, blah, blah, blah. And throughout this film, there's been this huge, just about as much emphasis put on Randy's hair as there is about they're eating at 12 o'clock. Oh my God. Like there is a set meal time and nobody is missing. Yes. <laughs> nobody. Can, they're like, this is, it's been repeated 50 times so that we're eating at 12 o'clock. But it's understandable because of the amount of fucking candles that they procured for this dinner. It's excessive. So, I mean, I get it. If I had to bring that many goddamn candles to a dinner party, that table is glowing. It is. It is. And so they're all eating and they're, um, they're eating, but they eat without Melissa and Sean, which is interesting because they've all throughout the whole film, they've been whining about they're not eating without each other. And then they're very, you know, they have no problem starting to eat without Melissa (laughs) and Sean, but they are like, Oh, where are they at? Blah, blah, blah. And I love this. There's this little thing and it always makes me laugh just the way he says it, where one of the characters mentions that uh, Kim had a lingerie that she gave to Melissa and, he, and Randy's like, you gave it to her. Like she's like the most disgusting thing ever to exist. It's disgusting. <laughs> that poor girl. Like she's such a, she's a beautiful physique. <laughs> Very lovely girl. Yeah. I think he really wanted it for his own personal pleasure is what I'm assuming. They are eating and they're kind of getting mad because they can't find Melissa and Sean. And so this is again where you get a long drawn out scene of these characters going and searching for these other two characters. So not only did you have long sequences of playing of them playing hide and go seek, now it switches to long sequences of them searching for Melissa and Sean. So um they go looking for Sean and Melissa and they come across all of the mannequins now have been positioned in like obscene ways. Like their legs are spread open. They're naked. Their tops are off. <laughs> yeah. And Johnny is not happy. Oh, it. he's pissed. He's pissed. Pissed. Understandably so. But this is when you start to see the atmosphere of this film is really fucking creepy because these mannequins are just everywhere. And then like, we stated at the beginning there are so there's in many scenes, there's always like something going on in the background. Um, and can we say about this film it, you, if you get a chance to watch the Blu-ray release of this film, I think the Blu-ray was put out by mm, 88 films a couple years ago because the VHS version and the version that you can find like on streaming or like on YouTube, it's very dark. So you, a lot of times you can't see what's going on, but the Blu-ray version is is really looks really great. So because then you do catch things in the background that 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 are going on or that are there that you don't see because it's so dark and like the VHS. But there are oh, it's just so creepy because there's something going on in the background a lot of times in this film that if you're not paying attention, you don't. You don't yeah, know. there's a few moments where you see like the mannequin, like you'll see the head turn on a mannequin. It's obviously not a mannequin; it's 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 the killer. But the way it's set up, like this whole world, it all kind of blends together until you really you're looking for it. Yeah, it's very cool, very cool. So then, when they can't find Melissa and Sean, they just decide they're going to bed. So. Fuck them. <laughs> yeah, fuck them. We're going to bed. 
Although, I mean, these two characters were like the least two characters likely to like just like go off and not not really respond to anybody. So it's kind of weird that they would just like be so quick to be like, okay, fuck them, let's go to bed. But I, I get it, whatever, you're horny. Because they go to bed and John and um, fucking Bonnie's fuck again. I don't know how many times they, this is like their fourth time. Yeah. Fertile. Yeah, while they're going at it, a figure appears at the end of the bed and it's wearing Sean's clothes. And he interrupts them fucking to like flick them off and then moon moon them. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, right? He moons them. Come on, how 80s is that? So, and Bonnie's like, you're a pig. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> that killer is like, absolutely. <laughs> John gets up and chases the, the whoever he thinks it's Sean, but it's not. And this is, again, kind of a shocking scene because you, John has been, John is, I mean, he's the main character. His dad, this is his dad's fucking furniture store. I mean, he's Sean, he's the main, or he's John, he's the main character. But what happens here? So he chases after, oh, I'm sorry, you're saying, what happens, Roger? You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what happens here, but it just—it's—it's surprising. Did it surprise you? No, it—it it, it did. It surprised me, and it also like um, the way it—it it took place, like the whole like struggle and everything, where he's like, "Who are you?" and that whole like scuffle and everything. Um, I was like, "Are they going to?" Like, I was questioning like what was going to happen, and then all of a sudden, like the way they played it out, um, was a, a really cool kill. Cause he does get killed obviously, but um, you don't really see it again. It's a, one of those unique kind of cutaway sequences. You don't see it until you see a shot of the killer dragging the legs, John's legs. And you see that he's been stabbed through the torso with a mannequin arm. And the only way you know that is because the arm is gliding with the body. And I was like, that is such a fucking stellar shot. It's so cool. Like you don't see any of the gore. You just see the arm being supported upwards. Cause you know, it's dug into his torso and it just was so effective. I really liked it. I thought it was a really cool sequence. Killer charges him with a mannequin arm. Yeah. And you don't, you're not exactly sure what happens. Although you kind of do get that, st- you get that corny scene where he does do that hand grab ah, and falls back. Reminded me of like one of the deaths from the mutilator, the kind of the same, just exaggerated reaction. But he, yeah, he dies. John dies, and I'm like, damn. So they're not playing around here. So who is going to, you know, who anyone can can die in this film? So and then for some reason, Bonnie hears someone coming, and she gets under the bed, which I'm not sure why because. It could have very easily just, she doesn't know who it is. It could have been John. It could have been any, but she decides to crawl under the bed to hide. And luckily she does because it's the killer and she sees his foot with the tattoo, snake tattoo, which is kind of the, that's the VHS cover art is her looking under the bed with the foot in front of her. So she automatically then knows that, Hey, someone else is in here with us. So she gets out and they, um yeah they're like freaking out and this is the scene it cuts to the scene then with Judy and David and can we just talk about the scene right now because Judy throughout this whole film has been the 
most virginal, meekest girl in the whole. She's so very demure. The whole film, the demurest, <laughs> with a, with a dumpy outfit, and all of a sudden she tells David, "Hey, before we have sex, I have a treat for you." And this bitch launches into a striptease that rivals anything fucking Demi Moore did in striptease. This bitch, this bitch pops on some like pussycat heels and she drops them khaki drawers and underneath is like a body that is so tight, so toned that Jamie Lee Curtis at her finest form would be envious. And, and she just pops it all out there. And this, this bitch is so confident. She's like, I saw it in the porno movie. Bitch, this ain't your first time. You're having a flash dance alternate life story going on that none of these friends know about. You're hooking. You're straight. <laughs> that body's tight. It's right. And it's out of motherfucking sight. And she looks so good. I was so proud of her. I know. I'm like, where did this come from? How did it, you, you, you are a fucking stripper. Uh, yeah, and she's acting all innocent about it. I just, I, I just watched it on a. Oh, so coy! Come on, you know what you're doing. Poor, uh, yeah, the actress. Although her, she was in a um, another '80s horror film. Um, the actress is Donna Bal- Baltron, I think, and she was in. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's one that would be interesting to cover. But it's super obscure. Not a lot of people have seen it. It's called Shallow Grave. I've never seen it. Mm-mm. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's about three female friends who are driving um, through Georgia in their car stalls. And basically, yeah, it's, it's, she's in that. So that's what I remember her for. And then this grand striptease performance. And she's earning that paycheck, let me tell you. That came out of nowhere. Um, yeah, she did more than a couple crunches before that shoot because she is looking good. So after that strip tease that we are treated to with the with the sexy music, you know, that's going on with it, um, Randy and Kim are, are sleeping in bed. Kim wakes up to go to the bathroom, and that's when Kim gets attacked by someone wearing Randy's clothes because the, the killer got Randy's clothes while he was sleeping to lure Kim, and they struggle on the elevator. And Randy hears Kim screaming and then he runs into Bonnie and Bonnie's freaking out because she saw the tattooed foot guy. And this is when the whole film just, the whole film just starts to just go bonkers because everyone's losing their shit. Losing their shirts. Randy's shirtless for the rest, literally the rest of the film. Which is fine with me. Fine with all of us homosexuals. Yeah. I like Randy. I like me some Randy. Um, and this is when we start to see Bonnie like, just this bitch is going into a fucking tailspin of emotions. Yeah. She's losing her shit. And it really, it, it adds to the whole thing that much more because having somebody who is just mentally like unstable in the midst of all this chaos just really adds to like the, <laughs> like the disarray of the whole thing. It's like a Scooby-Doo chase sequence for a period of time. I love it. So then we get, they get on the elevator. They all get on the elevator. Cause now they're trying to, what the fuck's going on? We have to find all these people. And we see that Kim is now tied to the top of the elevator. So we at least know where she's at. Nude. She's naked, yeah, by she's, the way. Now she's naked. Her tits are out and everything, of course. And um, they're looking around the second floor, third floor, and there's all these 
freaking mannequins now. They're everywhere. They're strewn about. I don't know how they have that many mannequins in the building to begin with. There's body parts. There's limbs, torsos everywhere. Then they they see that they see this is again. This is when we see <laughs> we see the killer is dressed in Kim's clothes, including her short shorts. And he's like fucking having like a footloose moment in one of the rooms. He's like sidestepping. He's kicking. Yes. And they're like, that isn't Kim, but God, she's having a good time. <laughs> it's basically what they say. <laughs> he has a blonde wig on. <laughs> and he's doing it. He's doing it. The aerobics is sidestepping. And then he does that and runs away. That haunting laugh. It's very off-putting. And yeah, it's so funny. They're like, oh, that's not Kim, but whoever it is looks good in her clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, you know who that is. And yes, he does. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then the killer is like getting fed up with this because then it cuts to him and he's like taking all this shit off and he's putting his his suit back on and he's like, this is when he's has that little nursery rhyme. He's, he says something about it's time to clean house. And then he's like, housewife's work is never done. Adam, for a moment, I thought that he was the like store assistant that left with John's dad earlier in the movie. I was like, does that mean that he's like the employee that works there? Like, who is he? But then it all kind of started to explain itself. And it's very interesting. Again, this is a, the killer is a man who wears makeup and is referring to himself as a female. I mean, he calls himself a housewife. Uh, and this is 1988. Yeah. Um, so let's give this film, whether you think the portrayal uh, of the killer is problematic or not, let's give this film a little bit of credit for actually having this queer theme to it. And yeah, I mean, I know you've been like waiting to touch on this topic because you kind of even segued into it uh, during the last, like when we discussed that this is the ch- uh, the film that we were going to be talking about this episode. I know you kind of like brought up the themes and everything. Like, honestly, like as it started to expose itself as what it was, I was like, this is what gets people upset. Like I've seen films in this genre uh, be far more, disrespectful in their portrayal of certain minority groups or what have you um, than this. I, I, I've seen films lean into it that much harder. This is, I mean, if anything, yeah, I give it some credit for starting to take the route it does with having the relationship that gets brought up and everything. As listeners who have not seen this film will find out, it does get pretty gay. Um, but I think it gets gay almost, to me, someone involved had to be a gay man because there are certain choices made with the characters and their dialogue with each other and everything that makes me think at this time when characters were having to live a closeted life and everything, and this was something that probably was mentally very stressful on them i'm sure tapping into this kind of storyline actually makes sense i don't see anything disrespectful about it i would agree and we will touch on that here in a minute when we actually reveal the killer and their motive uh yeah because yeah i i don't see how this is problematic and that's just me uh but we'll yeah. get there um so the the guy the, the 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 remaining teens and let's let's stop and say that there are there's Right now, there are still how many left? There's five. There's five because Kim is on top of the elevator. We've got David, um, and well, we've got you know the one couple, and then we've got um, 
Bonnie and uh, Randy. Yeah. So, and we're at this point, you're about an hour into the film and not even half the kids have been killed. So that just tells you something about like, I think the film's intent. Um, so they run to the, they run to the front of the store. The doors are locked. And this is a cool scene where like you see them from the outside of the building and they're trying their hardest to pound on the glass. Randy, Randy picks up a table and throws it. And of course it doesn't do anything because it's shatterproof. I love this whole sequence. I love this whole sequence. I like the silence of them pounding. You could just see like how dramatic they're like, God, please hear us. And, like there's a homeless man waving to them, but then he starts to realize like, yeah. And the cops pull up and they talk to the homeless guy and they don't even notice the kids. And it's so effective because they're so silent because like this shatterproof glass, they really lean into that fucking shatterproof glass. They can't do anything. So they're like, we got to go back to the office. Let's just make a stand. Um, nothing. We're all together. Nothing can happen. Which I, I loved. I love that they're like, we're going to fight back. Like, again, not a trope. It's not, I kind of went a different direction of what I would have anticipated. Well, yeah, because let's, let's be honest. If this was a Friday the 13th or a Halloween, they'd be like, let's split up and see what we can find. Um, these guys stick together. So they go back to the office and, and whatever. And then they're like, um, they find out from opening one of the, like the utility door that the lights have been like, they see the, um, the light thing has been cut. And that, that actually is a super cool scene when the killer actually cuts the lights because then everything turns red. Yeah. It goes into the emergency lights and it's, it's so much more dramatic. Like, smart call in the sense of whoever was doing the cinematography and the lighting on this, because it adds just a whole other layer to an already effective environment. Like it switched it up just by giving it a different lighting tone. It, it made it feel that much more ominous. You it know? looks so cool. Yeah. Um, so, and this is when, when Bonnie sees the light, it's a big cut. This is when she really freaks out. This is when she's like grabbing herself and hugging her and going, and I feel it, girl. I'd be right there with her, rocking in a corner. I mean, it's it's. this is a hysterical performance. That's all I can say. And again, this bitch deserves at least a Golden Globe. If not the Oscar, she she needed a Golden Globe. Well, and she's panicking. They're all like looking for weapons. And I love that she's the one that opens the closet and the first body discoveries. They fall on her and she's just like, oh, God, why, why, God, why? She sounds like Nancy Kerrigan after Nancy Kerrigan got her leg broken with a fucking police baton. Like, this is a level of performance that we're getting from this girl. She's, she, her scream is great. When those bodies fall on her, yes. Because she, she opens this door thinking it might be a way out. And, and it's um, Sean and Melissa's bodies fall on her. And she lets out just this primal scream uh, that is probably one of the best I've heard in horror. And yeah, then you're right. She's like, Oh my God. Like freaking out. And then <laughs> everyone's freaking out. And then you get stupid. What's her name? Um, Judy. Who I, they only say her name like one time. Like the only reason I know her name is Judy is because I went on IMDB. I don't think they say her name throughout the whole movie, but anyways, Judy, the striptease like slips and falls on the body. And she has to have her freak out moment where she starts screaming her head off. And I'm like, this is getting crazy. And then but overall, Judy's pretty calm and cool, like a cucumber for the most part. There's not, as you start to get to this point, you realize there's not really like a final girl kind of mold here, which is really unique. But Judy is kind of the one who's like, all right, I'm going to try to keep some form of sanity throughout all this. Whereas then meanwhile, we have Bonnie, whose brain is melting out of her ears and she can't stand up straight. 
And we have to keep in mind there are two guys, too. Randy and David are still alive, and they're kind of worthless. They're not doing much at this point. So they get they get up, and then uh, they need to get a they oh they need to get a weapon, and so I think it's Judy pulls a mannequin arm, and it happens to be the mannequin arm that is like stuck in John's body. So his body then falls dramatically out from behind this cardboard and splats on the floor. And he's in his underwear now for some reason, because he wasn't in his underwear before. It's because the killer takes all of the clothing and create, recreates their identities. I was thinking the killer just wanted to see what he was packing. but mm. I mean, I'm curious too, because that body ain't looking bad, but um, I think it, I think it's because as we've noticed the killer, you know, every time he takes a different identity, he's wearing their clothing. All the bodies are in their underwear. You notice that? Yeah. And Kim is fully nude. Tied to an elevator. Yes, tied to an elevator. Okay, so we're just getting nonstop action here because then the creepy worker comes out and he's like, hey, kids. And they just start beating beating the shit out of him relentlessly. (laughs) Like they all gang around him and they curb stop the poor man. (laughs) He's just like trying to figure out what the fuck's going on. They're beating him with mannequin arms, mannequin legs, heads, everything. And they, they, they run to get, for some reason, Judy happens to know there's rope by the office. So they run and get that and they tie him up. <sighs> and then Randy is like kicking him. You slime bag over and over. Well, I mean, their friends have been murdered. <laughs> I understand why they assume it would be the man with the tattoo of a, of a whatever, a snake going down his hand. Because keep in mind, he does have the same tattoo that she saw when she was under the bed. So they all think it's him. Yeah, they think it's him. So in the meantime, then you get the magazine. The newspaper guy shows up to work across the street, and he actually sees the guys or the kids in the store, and he calls the police. So this makes sense to why the police show up. Because he's like, hey, there's a robbery at Fine Furniture. You all better get here. So, but before they can, oh, before they can, we get a shitload of stuff to happen because <laughs> the, the kids then get on the elevator to look for Kim because Randy's like, well, we haven't seen Kim's body. She might still be alive. So let's go look for her. And so they get on the elevator and we see Kim is on top of the elevator. The killer is on top of her, like just punching the shit out of her. And as the elevator is going up, she happens to like break away from the killer and like sticks her head down and is like, ah, and they're screaming at him. And they can't stop the elevator and the bitch is decapitated. Oh, so effective with her mouth like open, gaping, screaming, blood coming out of it. Oh, this is one of the best decapitation scenes I've seen in the film. Yeah. This looks real. Like, um, it's really effective. It's almost akin to like Tatum's death and scream kind of that same, but this one's way, I think this is way executed way better. This looks, Oh, you see the full separation of the head, like in mid scream. It's very impressive. The one thing about this lead up that kind of confused me is so she's tied to the elevator. They fight the, they, the kids fight off uh, the tattooed mystery man who's been living in the store. Meanwhile, 
why does the killer go back to Kim? Like she's already tied to the top of the elevator. Why was she tied to the top of the elevator to begin with? I'm very confused what his motivation was with putting her. I mean, was he, in my mind, I thought she was going to get crushed at some point. I was like, she's got to get crushed. Like why else would she be up there? But like, for some reason he tied her to the top of the elevator, but then he just kind of went up back, back up there just to harass her. Like I don't, I'm very confused by it, but it still led up to a great kill. That, yeah. It doesn't make much sense. Like how would he know that they were going to get back on the elevator? Um, you know, and why didn't he, yeah. Why is he like letting her live for so long? I mean, he killed everyone else pretty quickly. So why, like, what was his fascination with just tying her up and letting her be up there? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things. Yeah. That you have to question, especially when you find out who the killer is, which we're getting to. So they all jump off the elevator and there's this like cool part where like they, a couple of them like slip on the head <laughs> and the head goes sliding across the floor Just rolling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they run back to their spot. Um, oh my God. And this is when this would, okay. If, if, if there was justice and Bunky Jones was nominated for an Oscar, this was the scene they would play for her Oscar clip. Absolutely. It's when she's, and she's like, understand and she like the the bitch can barely get syllables out at this point she's so manic curls up into this like fetal position (laughs) and the oscar goes to rebunka jones for her groundbreaking performance in hide and go shriek i don't understand that's when the clip is played as people are clapping for her (laughs) Oh God! Okay, we are going there because here we go. Because now we get the view. the killer emerges from behind the bed, wearing the wearing a harness, full full makeup. <laughs> I mean, it looks like something straight out of fucking cabaret. I've I was not prepared for this. The only thing that kind of got me anywhere prepared for having anything like this is at one point the tattooed man in his mystery home beneath the store opens up like a drawer and it's like filled with like bondage gear like or it's filled with like you know and it was like okay well we're going there but i didn't expect the killer just to debut himself in nothing but a harness and like a fully shellacked face of makeup yeah it's very gay and very aggressive so he's in his little harness and he has a razor blade he he basically attacks them all and he's able to slice randy across the chest and then takes off running and is running back towards them. And this is when Fred somehow got free from being tied up. I don't know how, but he did. He, had to, he, he then jumps on the killer. And this is when you get every, you get the reveal. The big reveal. Um, and what a reveal it is. Okay. So here we go. Take yes. it, Troy. So we find out that the killer and Fred, the killer's name is Zach, by the way, which is just funny to me because I don't know. That's just not a very like 80s, 50 year old guy name. Zach. Okay. They apparently were lovers in prison. Okay. Lava. And Zach and Fred, now, Zach was just released from prison and he found out that Fred was living in this, found out where Fred was. And he is basically killing these kids because he feels like they're getting in the way of, of them being able to be happy together, which 
doesn't make much sense, but whatever. And then Fred, I don't know. And then Fred is very upset and is like, we're not in there anymore, Zach. Because Zach's like, why don't you love me anymore? And he's like, we needed each other in there. We don't need each other now. And and you're going to go back in there. They keep saying just in there. And I was like, wait. Like, I was not following it at first. And I, like, went back and I was like, oh, prison. But, yeah, they kept referencing it as in there. It was very uh, suggestive of something. But it's kind of sad because there's – and I'm sorry, but when you see the scene when when um, Zach is like, is like, I did this for you. I did this for us. And, like, Fred punches him in the face – you can see like the hurt in his face. He's like, why, why are you doing this to me now? I thought you cared about me. And Fred's like, no, we're not in there anymore. We don't need each other now. And he's like, it, it's, it's different now. And Zach's like, it's not different for me. It's kind of sad because it's this, this, I don't know. They're in- yeah. Yeah. They, they played up the drama aspect of it in a way. Like I almost like he's giving like a uh, 10% of, Tim Curry Frankenfurter almost at some points because he's got that makeup and it's smeared and everything. Um, you know what I mean? Um, so I really, I enjoyed this moment. And again, if this was the moment where they are, um, people are starting to say like, this is problematic. I didn't see it as that at all. I don't see this as problematic. I actually thought this was kind of sad. But here's the thing, Roger, and I'm just going to say this. And we, we might, we, maybe we'll lose listeners i don't know i feel like there is a a thing with with some gay horror fans where if the killer is gay they automatically view it as problematic uh, yeah i i hear that absolutely god for god forbid a, a a killer be gay let's let's not Discuss the thousands of slasher films that have straight killers who are killing because of, of love or jealousy or whatever. But God forbid we get a gay killer and oh my God, it's problematic. It's 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 a negative reflection on the the gay community. Gay gay guys are already looked at as being, you know, um second class citizens or predatory and we don't need this type of portrayal, blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, and I can understand maybe like coming out of the era and everything, like the argument, like, you know, oh, they weren't as educated on the culture and what have you. But like, it's still like watching this, like uh, it was, yes, they were gay, but it was, it wasn't something that I necessarily thought that they played it up as an, they never called them faggots. They never made it a hostile thing. They were just two lovers who were, if anything, having to hide themselves. And that made it sad. It made it sad to me. It made sense in a way. It, and it's it's not portrayed negatively in my mind. It's portrayed as someone who is in love. And yes, he's a psychopath, but I don't think that has anything to do with him being gay. Um, obviously, this dude had issues that go beyond him being gay. And in fact, this was made in 88. And it's the, I mean, look at it. The portrayal is not that different than what you see with a lot of gay guys today. I mean, it, it really isn't. So... I, they would come out with something like this now and it would be on an episode of an American horror story and fans would gobble it up because it would, it, because of who was playing it and how it was played. You know what I mean? Um, and in this, in this context, I thought it was fine. I didn't think it was offensive at no, all. I don't think it is either. I, I, and I'm glad you agree with me. I was really interested in what you, what you uh, were going to say about this because I don't think it's offensive. I don't think it's a negative portrayal. 
I think it's a slasher film that obviously I, I can't imagine that the screenwriter was not a gay man. I don't know. I never did that much research into the film, but it's very realistic. It's not looked, it's not portrayed looking as being like a bad thing. Um, you know, you have just their story. If anything, it's more from the, the situation of it's, uh, especially with some of the dialogue you hear towards the end of the film, it's portrayed as something that like you kind of feel for them because they felt like they couldn't be them true selves. And it's almost like, okay, so nobody, you know, bats an eye with Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction as being a villain, which this is very, I mean, he's, this is very similar in terms of motive. Um, and even, okay, so let me, because there is a, there's a, a line in this film that I think solidifies the fact that I don't think this is offensive at all. And I actually think it was making a very bold and very um, ahead of its time statement. And I'm going to get to it. I bet you I know the line, but I'm going to let you say it. I want to know if it's the same one. Yeah. Basically what happens is Fred, Zach and Fred get into a struggle because Zach realizes that Fred is not going to, is, is, is going to try to kill him because Fred pulls out a knife and he says to him, you've killed people now. You fucked everything up for me. You're going back there. Zach freaks out. They have a scuffle. You can't really see what's going on until you hear something and then you hear a moan and then you see Fred walk out and you think he's okay, but he turns to the camera and the knife is sticking out of his neck. Yeah. Yeah. So he's dead. And then you get the scene where finally um, Judy gets some balls and she grabs the razor blade from the floor and runs towards him and he slips on Bonnie's head and falls down the elevator shaft. That's I love that Bonnie's head comes back into play. Or, um, uh, Kim's head comes back into play one more time. Oh, uh, but and I said Bonnie's head. Kim's head. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and he falls down the elevator shaft. And I, like, it, it wasn't up to that moment that I kind of realized, like, oh, my God. There are still four characters alive. And that was pretty shocking to me. Yes. And that's another thing is this film does not, is this film does not follow slasher conventions by any means, because what other slasher film can you think of where four half of the characters lived? And you know what? I love them all. So I'm fine with it. Like I would have been pissed if Bonnie and Randy would have died because I love the, I love the characters. So if you would have killed them off, I'd be like, fuck this movie. I'm so I'm, I'm glad that they live. So I'm fine with that. Okay, so now I want to get to the line where I think that this movie is progressive. And it's the fact that you, after all this has happened, the police show up. John's dad has come back to the store, obviously. The police must have called him. And, he's at, and Fred hasn't died yet. And Fred's laying on the ground. And basically, John's dad is asking, like, who is this guy? What happened? He's like, yeah, we were in prison together. And they used to beat him. So I had to protect him. And I did not know that he would do this and there's this heartbreaking line where he says i'm sorry i tried to be straight yup so please tell me for a movie in 1988 a slasher movie a low budget slasher movie to have that sort of awareness where you were putting it out there that this poor guy was just he he felt like he had to try to be straight to live his life it's not just i tried to be straight he said i tried to be straight i'm sorry and then he, and then he very dramatically dies upon the moment after he says it. But it is one of those things where you like it's heartbreaking because if you look at it, especially as a gay man looking at it, like this, 
this, these two obviously had something. Um, the one loved him enough to lose his sh- shit and kill. And the other one obviously was having to live an ulterior life and, and, and felt remorse and, and uh, felt the need to, to live as though he was someone else. And, and how is that not relatable to people within our culture? And sure, it might have been played up a little bit in this with the makeup and the bondage gear and everything. But at its core, how is that not kind of a relatable arc? Especially when you think back, you know, in the 80s, think of how far we've progressed just in a matter of 30 to 40 years. Our culture has earned a lot of our privileges and our respect, you know, not that we're completely respected by everyone, but we've earned a lot of uh, the advancements within the last, like, 10 to 20 years back to the eighties, it was still something that a lot of people were very much having to fight to be who they were. And it was the very beginning of, of a movement that started happening and made gained a lot of strength through the nineties. But yeah, don't, don't tell me that's not a progressive choice to include this in the story arc. I think it was quite sad and quite impactful. I do too. But I, and like I said, I think it goes back to there just some, there are some people in the gay community that just think that anytime a gay is portrayed as a villain, that it's a bad thing. And I understand the eighties was a different time. Gay, you know, we had the AIDS epidemic, gay, the gay lifestyle certainly wasn't something that was being, um, champ, championed or celebrated. Um, but for a slasher film to portray two guys that, genuinely seem to be in love because I do feel like just from what he said when he was dying, I do feel like Fred actually loved Zach. And if the circumstances were different that they would be together, but he felt like he couldn't because of the time period. I just don't see how that is offensive or problematic. Uh, Maybe like someone that listens to this episode and you know, when we post it, if you guys want to respond when we post this episode and explain how this is problematic, Please do so because I'm open-minded. But again, I've watched this movie and I watched this movie this time specifically with that whole lens in mind. And I still don't think it's problematic. In fact, this time time around, I was even more saddened by the whole ending of this film Um, and by the whole fact that his line about, I tried to be straight, I'm sorry. I I just, that broke my heart. I think a lot of horror fans well i think there's a there's a portion of queer horror fans who feel the need and i'm not saying this in a bad way but feel the need to get up on a soapbox when anything about our lifestyle is looked at at, through a negative lens and the thing is it's not rational to say that's not possible uh especially within the horror genre because if you look at the motivations for any killer or any situation in any film, they're always heightened and elaborated takes on reality. Look at Prom Night. It's a situation of a brother whose daughter was killed due to bullying. Now, how often do individuals actually turn to murder over something like that? Well, often they don't. But a lot of people probably think, I want to fucking kill the people I know who hurt or killed my sibling. It's acting on that impulse. You know, and, and every every single slasher, killer, murderer has their motivations. And, and they're all unique and they're all different. And just because this one is rooted in something queer doesn't mean it's necessarily offensive. In fact, it makes it, I think, more relatable 
for me as a queer man, not saying it's something I would do, but not, I can't say that I haven't felt heightened emotions or pain at times where I have felt deprived of something or I have felt hurt or I have felt something that um, made me feel wrong as a gay man that maybe in a cinematic world translates to that reaction. Um, and, and I think it just, it's just one more motivation for someone to lose their shit and kill. And that's what the genre is about. That's why we watch these movies. So if we're going to combine the worlds of horror and queer cinema, I mean, I'm sorry, sometimes these, these things are going to blend in ways that may not be comfortable or may not necessarily be palatable, but it doesn't mean that it's offensive. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And a lot of times the, 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 the people in our community that like to get up on their soapboxes are some of the people that need to look at their own lives and, and see what they're doing because a lot of times those people are, you know, not doing the most, you know, positive things in their lives. So we have a eighties slasher film that really went there with the gay theme. And I, I think that should be like celebrated. And especially looking back on it now, knowing where we've, how far we've come, I think this film was ahead of its time in a sense, uh, whether you think the film is problematic or not because of, of acting or, plot structure or pacing that's a completely different element um but i feel like the 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 element the gay queer element of this film is very human very relatable uh and just because someone's gay does not mean they can't be a psychopathic killer i mean i i do think there's also something to be said about uh the, the idea that when certain things hit hit the mainstream hit pop culture um they don't necessarily get presented in a light that's um, exactly fair right off the bat. Um, and I think a lot of times when things hit pop culture, it's the first stepping stone to things becoming widely accepted. Uh, and so you look at um, a lot of things like, I mean, look at Af the whole journey of African-Americans and how they are portrayed in cinema and everything. And the idea that went from blackface being played by white people to actually being played by people of color to them actually being to play characters that are maybe a little more realistic to now being able to make their own films. And that was over an elongated period of time. So for if you look at the idea of queer culture, being introduced into pop culture, this is still early on, but it's a stepping stone because at, because of movies like this, then when the 90s, you start to hit characters who are maybe a little more realistic and you have uh, you know TV shows and films that are including gay characters. And at first they're stereotypical, but then they start to become more realistic over time because you know, suddenly you have a gay neighbor, you know gay people. Movies like this are the stepping stones to why mainstream audiences care about us to begin with. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I looking at from my perspective, um, you know, talking about films with with uh, a gay killer. I mean, hello, I did one teacher shortage. Are, are people going to think that that's problematic just because the killer is gay? Um, and we have we've had a, we've had several films in the last couple of years that have come out that have had that are queer based that have had queer based killers. Death Drop Gorgeous, for example, not that I want to spoil any, their their film, but. Um, and that's being, that's being celebrated. That's, that's won tons of awards that made out magazines, top 10 LGTB films of the year. Um, so I don't know. It's still, it's still something that I think needs to be pursued as a gay horror fan. I would love to see more gay themed films where the, the killer is gay. Um, it doesn't offend me one bit. Um, and, and again, this film is is 
definitely I feel like was ahead of its time. So with that said, before we piss anybody off, piss anybody else off. <laughs> um, but you know, that's, it is what it is. I, I, I like I said, I'm open-minded. I, I, that's just my opinion. I'm glad you liked the film though, Roger. Um, well, and I want to say for anything, you know, even if it has something where maybe, <laughs> maybe someone was offended by the fact the killer was gay. Don't you tell me that final shot in this movie wasn't fucking fabulous. Oh, we forgot about the Wait. final shot. <laughs> <laughs> where he smizes at the camera. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, all the kids are put in the back of the ambulance, and as the ambulance pulls away, it comes to a stop, and here we got Zach as the fucking driving the ambulance, and he, yeah, he looks at the camera and gives it a big old smile. He gives it like he's, mm-hmm. he literally has like a, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille moment where he just looks dead into the camera with his eyes just filled with intensity and it was then it's done i loved it yeah he survived a three-story fall down an elevator shaft come on we gays are resilient god damn it (laughs) funny it left it open for a sequel but it never happened which i'm glad i'm happy to know that those four made it to they went on to live happy lives i think aside from bonnie who's probably in an asylum the um yeah i'm glad there's never a sequel because you can't capture i think part of the film thing that makes this film effective is the setting to um the furniture store but yeah that is that is hiding go shriek and i am glad we got to talk about this film it's a lot of fun um yeah yeah i like that we really got to sink our teeth into some of that queer commentary too because we've covered movies that have had gay themes but this one really was one that i think um, viewers are probably very torn on, and I can understand why. You know, I can respect people's opinions, but um, but we cover. Look at what we covered for our very first episode, Hell Bent, and that's a very queer film. And you you have to assume. I mean, there's no other way to look at that film that the killer in that film was gay. Yeah. Oh, I mean, oh. to be honest, if I was going to say one of the fans made one of the films out of the you know Hell Bent and this one, which one? Um offends me more as a gay man not to say i'm necessarily offended but hellbent seeing that every single character in that film is played by a man who looks like he's straight up of a porn or looks mm-hmm. like somebody who's sculpted out of marble and a killer who has an eight pack abs and looks like an adonis to me looking at these unrelatable individuals who i you know uh, every gay in our culture is kind of pushed to look like and we all strive to become in a way that's more offensive to me than watching this story of these two average guys in, in the 80s who were trying to find happiness and couldn't because in a very Brokeback Mountain-esque situation, could not find love because it was not accepted. Because well, that's one thing I like about this film is that, yeah, the two, Zach and Fred, the actors that portray them are, are probably very nice guys, but they're definitely not the most attractive things you'll ever come across. Um, and then even, you know, yeah, and then even like you know some of the characters aren't the most attractive. I bet it, but it's yeah, Hellbent is definitely pushing that you know body, particular body type stereotype and everything like that. Even though yeah, that's very much a stereotypical gay film that's that pushes that whole um, physical like uh, every character in it has to look of a specific kind of physicality in order to be attractive. That's where a lot of the the queer like stigmas and mental health issues stem from. That's way more dangerous to me than mm. something like this. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So let I think this is maybe our longest episode. 
but yeah. Because we have a lot to say. <laughs> I'm glad we got to talk about this film. So, yeah, so that was Hide and Go Shriek, 1988. Um, what a good pick, Troy. You're always, you're on fire lately. I got to keep up. Oh well, no. You you here. You always pick these, you know, highbrow type films like The Invitation and The Cell. A highbrow, just like me. <laughs> okay, so we always like to reveal what the next film is going to be. And tell me, Dad. Tell me. Yeah, I thought about this. I was I was going to change my mind, but you know what? I thought about it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to change my mind because it's a little bit more lighthearted. It'd be a much more lighthearted conversation. Um, and it's a film that I haven't seen really covered on another horror podcast. And I'm keeping with a theme. Okay, so I Didn't Go Shriek took place in a furniture store. So now we are traveling from a furniture store. We're going to travel to a supermarket. So our next, my pick for our next episode is going to be the 1989, I believe, slasher flick Intruder. Yes, Intruder said no. In a grocery, fresh produce for everyone. Can't wait. Yeah, right. And Intruder is an interesting film. It is, um, yeah, it's about a group of night stalkers who are um, working in a grocery store overnight, and someone starts to pick them off. And I bet this movie really offends people who work in grocery stores. (laughs) <laughs> such a bitch yeah, it has a great it has um, Renee Estevez has Sam Raimi in it um, yeah so I think it's a fun one have you seen it Roger um, you know I, I so this is a film that um, like a year ago I was like this is a movie I want to watch because I saw that Sam Raimi was in it and then I like wicka wicka what did it you know like was reading up about it on Wikipedia uh, no spoilers I don't really know what happens but I did watch like a few segments of it but I never watched the full film I have never seen the whole movie it's yeah it's very it's very uh, Raimi-esque if, if that's a word because the director Scott Spiegel has worked with um, he was in Evil Dead Evil Dead 2 uh, he worked on Drag Me to Hell. So he's very close with um, Sam Raimi. And, and oh, and um, Bruce, yeah, no. Um, yes, it's a, it's a great film. Um, check it out. Yeah, I want you to watch it. However, please, please, please make sure that you watch the uncut version. Yeah, seek it out. I'll, I'll help you find it because, yeah. You know what I say? I like them uncut. <laughs> Don't bother, don't bother with the R-rated. No, give it to me on cut or don't give it at all. So it'll be fun. It'll be a more like fun, lighthearted conversation. Uh, it's just a fun film. It's gory. It's- People getting killed in a grocery. What more could you want? Yeah. So yeah, that'll be it. Excellent. Yeah, so we will get that out probably soon. Excellent. Troy, as always, I appreciate your selections. You've got me watching a lot of films I've not seen before. I tend to lean into more modern horror, as you know, and you tend to bring in the 80s vibe that I really enjoy that I'm not as experienced with. And you're introducing me to a lot of films I've not seen. So thank you for that. I can't wait till this next episode. As our viewers know, we are kind of on a roll here, and I think we're going to keep that, keep it going, keep this ball rolling. Rolling on the river. For sure. Well, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating on 
give us a rating. Give us a like. Yeah, give us a like. And yeah, give us a fucking review. Because we are we are not stopping. Not stopping. No time soon. Nope. At least. So Troy, thank you very much to our listeners. We thank you all. Spread the word. Let them know that we've got opinions on things. And Troy, I'll be talking to you next week. Yes. Yes, with Intruder. Yes. Intruder, yes. Goodbye. All right. You guys have a great night. Thanks for tuning in.